just now, before coming into the hall, I was just walking and enjoying walking barefoot outside in the in the rather luxurious grass we have here. And I just found myself remembering a, a particular point from a movie I saw, I don't know, I guess sometime last year, some of you may have seen, it's called Gladiator. Now, of course, the, the movie, if any of you have seen it, and the, even the title, that perhaps particularly evokes sort of great dharmic images or a sense of anything similar to what we've been doing right here, since that main sort of character of the movie spent most of his time being attacked by various um, large numbers of people with pointy, sharp weapons, and generally him succeeding to kill them, despite that. Um, and what might that have in common with what we're doing here? Well, what actually touched me just as I was walking outside was remembering how touched I was by the character. Some of you will have seen this movie, I imagine. The character, um, Russell Crowe, is a New Zealand actor, which isn't part of the reason why I was touched by it. <laughs> <laughs> so, New Zealanders, because there aren't many of us, um, do tend to take some pride in <laughs> the occasional one that rises above the crowd. But this particular character, although he was remarkable, it seemed, for an incredible degree of integrity with which he faced some pretty difficult conditions of betrayal and loss, and a remarkable skill and beauty, it seemed, and artistry even, and the ability to wield a sword, um, what actually touched me very much about him was that whenever he was about to enter into some gladiatorial conflict or lead an army into battle, um, he would reach down and touch the ground, pick up some soil and just rub it in his fingers in a kind of very casual and yet at the same time really it felt to me significant way. And it, it spoke something to me about actually what is at the heart of our practice and what is at the heart of our life. And I'd like to speak this evening on what perhaps we could call the theme of the great heart of life. It seems to be a feature of what it is to be alive for us as human beings, a feature of what we perhaps call the human condition, that we wish, sometimes perhaps it seems above all things, we wish to be loved. This is pretty much reliably in common with all human beings, the wish to be loved. And it's something that's incredibly powerful for us. We actually find one of the most difficult and threatening situations in our life when we're called or asked in any way to act in such a manner that may risk another withdrawing their love from us or in fact acting towards us with anger or judgment. And this 
This wish to be held can be incredibly powerful. This, incre- this wish to have contact with that which nourishes and nurtures us, which we perceive and understand at a very deep and I think a genuine level the, the importance of love to our own well-being. The receiving of love. It's something that, you know, scientifically there have been experiments to show that, that, that small animals or particularly young babies without love do not thrive, sometimes do not survive. And I recently heard um, in a, a talk given by a, a visiting teacher who came here last year, Ajahn Suchito, the abbot of a, a monastery in Sussex. And he told this story of, a, of an experiment that was done, which in some ways is it's kind of a horrible thing that it was done, but at the same time it's remarkably touching, as well as tragic in what it was actually revealing. And what was done was these small baby monkeys, which apparently were orphans, well I hope they were orphans anyway, were put together with a, a sort of like a surrogate mother, a soft, furry, sort of fluffy being in a cage. And, and the surrogate, this very young baby monkeys were put together with the little being, with the, um, the surrogate mother. And some food was put about 10 yards away at the other end of the cage just to see what would happen. And what happened was that the, the monkeys would cling on to the warm, soft source of comfort and would starve to death if they were left there that long, even though food and nourishment was only a few yards away. And there's something quite quite deeply troubling almost, certainly deeply touching in that sense of how strongly we wish and need to be in contact with something that we feel loves us or something that we feel can hold us. And there is it seems for us a incredible importance and value in the experience of being loved, of actually receiving that quality of holding, of allowing, of accepting, of enfolding and even embracing of our life by another. And equally, the degree to which we can embrace and unfold our own lives. This is profoundly nourishing for us. And probably this isn't news to any of us, but something that I think goes with this, which perhaps is not so commonly reflected upon, at least as I see or understand it for myself, is that what happens when we actually feel loved is that we feel safe to let our heart be open. We actually feel safe to love ourselves. And this is actually the more important of the two. It is this that is actually crucial for our existence. 
and that the, the space and the environment in which this is possible, in which this is enabled to happen, is therefore equally important. But not just for itself, but because it allows us to open. And in our opening to our own life and ability to hold our own heart, for our heart to hold our life equally, we also open to and learn to hold the life of others. And in terms of our aliveness and the depth of our human existence, that process of actually loving, I would say, is the more important of the two. And the need to love, although it is easier and safer, and often the place where we learn about love is when we are loved. And it's right that this is so. It is also possible for us to learn what it means to love unconditionally. To have access, to have contact, to know the condition of our heart that is able to open even in the environment where it does not necessarily feel most safe or most easy to do so. Our experience of living in this world as, again, I don't think any of us need pointed out to us, is at times a remarkably challenging experience. What it means to be alive is certainly at times difficult, it's sometimes clearly threatening and on occasion may feel to be violent beyond our comprehension. Certainly we only need to look in the newspaper for one day to see so much that is of that order. And whether or not that has been the story or some of the story of our own personal lives, there is no doubt that our lives are remarkably unpredictable. Certainly not able to be known in advance that there will not be anything difficult waiting around the corner for us. And this, if not understood, easily leads to the condition where we live our life in fear. And we might ask ourselves, quite usefully, how much of our life, of our actions, of our energy has been spent trying to avoid that which we fear trying to get away, trying to escape, trying to prevent or to protect ourselves from coming into contact with that which we fear. We've touched some on this theme over these days, but just actually sensing what a place, what a significant weightiness 
the experience of fear may have in our lives. Seeing clearly how our tendency to move away from the object of the fear, from the thing which we think we are afraid of, doesn't actually work. Because although we may escape its object, the fear seems to follow us, seems to come with us and simply find something else to be afraid of. And that we're asked in a very fundamental way to give attention to this experience of fear, to understand its nature. Because if it is not understood, it has the effect of putting pressure on our heart. It is hard for the heart to be open in the face of fear which we do not understand. And perhaps what we need to understand most about the experience of fear, which is not to say that this is an easy thing to be able to put into practice, but to understand that fear is telling us a story about something in the future, about what might happen, could happen, will happen, happened before, and could happen again. It's telling us a story about the future, but it's always an experience that is happening right now. And the power that it has is its capacity to fool us into believing that it is about the future, and thereby moving us out of where we are into a future which does not exist in this moment, except in our thought of it. And by moving into that place, we actually become disempowered by the fear, because we're no longer in touch with what is real. And being in touch with what is real is the source of all true empowerment. Actually coming back into this moment to know fear as an experience happening right now, perhaps experiencing it in the body as we've spoken about. Coming to see that from that place we begin to understand the difference between fear and discernment, which recognizes that it does not serve us. There's a story told of the uh, great Indian teacher Krishnamurti when he was once giving a talk and speaking of the, the tragedy of a life lived in fear and the, and the possibility of freeing oneself from it. And after he'd spoken at some length on the scene, someone from the balcony, this was in an auditorium with a great sea of people on the chairs and there was an upper circle, someone in the upper circle leaned over and said, Krishnamurti, but fear is really useful. Without fear I might jump off this balcony and hurt myself badly. Fear is important. And Krishnamurti replied, he said, that's not fear, that's intelligence. And to come to know the difference. There's actually something really important for us. And something we can only actually do by meeting our experience of fear in the present.
and in that quality of presence coming to see what actually is the wisdom of our situation of our actions, of our choices and possibilities and yet often we're confronted with the difficult, the challenging, the threatening the painful and we aren't able perhaps to recognize our reaction to it we aren't able to avoid it and yet we're not really clear what is happening and we find that it is not just fear that arises in the face of the challenge of life for us but anger we find ourselves feeling that life is so unfair that people really are bad that we ourselves are bad we judge so harshly and so strongly in a, in a way the anger is trying to push away that which we are being impacted by in being unable to avoid it and escape it which is the movement of fear we find ourselves reacting with anger which is the movement to push away to strike out at perhaps even to harm or destroy and then this anger becomes hatred and we see that this movement of trying to push away life because it's impacting in us, on us in a way that feels too difficult for us that we feel we cannot cope with that we feel perhaps at some level our very existence is threatened by what is happening because all fear ultimately comes back down to that wish to protect our existence And yet, what we see with anger is again that pushing away at the thing with, that we are angry at does not actually solve this problem for us. We may succeed in distancing ourselves from the object, the thing which we are angry with, whether it is a person, a situation, a government, a business corporation, a part of ourselves. But there's something incredibly painful in that division that is created by pushing away. We see ourselves contracting, our heart closing. We can feel this when we come in touch with that experience. It's remarkably painful, exquisitely painful. Fear and anger are two of the most essentially sort of quintessentially unpleasant experiences we can have and when we close, when we contract in relationship to them we find ourselves bound conditioned, limited and imprisoned by the experience we find that we're actually as it were expelled from our heart we're no longer able to be in touch with that quality of openness of warmth, of kindness, of love that is the very lifeblood of our existence of our well-being, of our joy and we perhaps ask ourselves seeing that it's painful seeing that it doesn't serve us 
How can we open our heart? What does this mean? What does this ask God? And one aspect of the response to that question, how can we open our heart, is to look for ourselves to see, to know for ourselves in our own experience that it truly does not serve us. While at one level we see the pain and the suffering of it, at another level if we're holding on to it, it's because to some degree and in some way we actually feel that this is necessary, this is serving us. That our fear is what is protecting us from threat by making us run away. That our anger is what is defending us against harm or protecting the world against that which is evil or wrong or bad. And we feel justified that we need this, that it's important. It's interesting how many people get angry if you say to them, that anger doesn't help. It really is. That there's something in us that feels we need this. It's like saying you're taking away my weapon and I'm vulnerable in the face of a world that's going to attack me without it. And yet it doesn't serve us. His Holiness the Dalai Lama was once interviewed and I'm sure you're all familiar with the incredible circumstances that Tibetan people are and the remarkable and noble stance that the Dalai Lama takes and the uh, I think majority of the Tibetan people take with regard to the Chinese occupation of Tibet. <coughs> and the many expressions of care and compassion and kindness towards those people that that come from His Holiness and others. As well as, of course, expressions of deep concern with regard to things that happen that are not appropriate, that are harmful. But His Holiness was interviewed and he was asked by the interviewer, the interviewer said, how is it in the face of all that has happened in your country that you still can find so much compassion and love, it seems, in your heart for the Chinese people and their government. How is it? I can't believe that you're not angry with them. And His Holiness responded, he said, you know, they've taken my country. They've destroyed my temple. They've imprisoned and persecuted my people. They've killed my friends, my monks and my nuns. They've taken everything they could take from me. Should I let them take my heart and mind as well? Something remarkable in that in that wisdom. Perhaps the only thing that another cannot ultimately take from us is our own capacity to open our heart again and again.
and again. And that doesn't mean, of course, that there aren't going to be times of reactivity, of contraction. I can't imagine that a holiness hasn't a time experienced fear for his people and his country and himself, anger with regard to what has happened. I may be wrong. I may be wrong, but this is my sense that it's hard to imagine a human being would not have experienced that, but perhaps he has not. But whether or not he has, that actually what is transcendent over that is his clarity of intention of what is truly useful and wise (coughs) and serves not just, it's not for just the Chinese people and their leaders that he would wish to have compassion and not anger but recognizing that this is for his own heart to not let them take that as well and while I was just reflecting on this I saw in the um, in the reception someone put up a rather lovely poster of something that Dalai Lama said in 1994 at a conference in New York he said never give up no matter what is going on, never give up. Develop the heart. Too much energy in your country is spent developing the mind, intellect, instead of the heart. Develop the heart. Be compassionate. Not just to your friends, but to everyone. Be compassionate. Work for peace in your heart and in the world. Work for peace, I say again. Never give up. No matter what is happening, no matter what is going on around you, never give up. It's a beautiful invitation and an equally beautiful invocation of our human possibility. And at the same time, I think, recognises that we may at times feel like giving up, perhaps many times. And yet, there is that capacity within us, in the, the miracle of the human heart, that it can spring forth again, new life can arise new hope, new possibility. The healing of our heart, which is really the same process as the opening of our heart, the discovery of our heart's greatness. Requires that we do acknowledge life's pain. That we acknowledge beings in this world act and react blindly, causing suffering. That we have done this at times ourselves and that others also too. This is all of our story. Blindly 
in pain at times we react causing harm to others causing harm to ourselves and often we find ourselves faced with great fear incredible grief and rage at the pain that we have been exposed to at the suffering of our lives and equally exposed to and touched with depths of shame and regret guilt for the pain that we may have caused the mistakes we have made in our lives and we've all made them and how do we hold ourselves and each other recognizing that this is how we are perhaps we would wish it wasn't so but this seems to be one aspect of our lives there's an image that I find rather useful to understand what's going on and it's really based on recognizing that it is not in our nature or the nature of any living being to wish to seek to cause harm to others any more than it is in our nature to wish to harm ourselves and in this I'd just like you to imagine the scenario as I describe it you might like to close your eyes or not as you wish but just imagine going for a walk in the, um, perhaps in the trees out the back of Gaia House and as you're walking out there and actually this was pretty close to possible yesterday um, you might encounter a small puppy under the trees I believe there was one running around in the grounds yesterday but the story isn't about that puppy and you're just walking out under the, under the trees you see a puppy and having some enjoyment of small creatures such as puppies one just sees it and with some natural friendliness a natural response to want to reach out and stroke it not threatening or nasty a small furry creature and yet reaching out to stroke it as we put our hand close to it it yelps and bites our hand barks at us and bites our hand and we pull our hand back and imagine our reaction you you fill in the next word um, and we might almost want to strike it to teach it a lesson that it shouldn't do that perhaps sometimes we might actually strike it and then just as we're in that moment of reaction what we see is its foot is caught in a trap now this wouldn't happen at Gaia House but somewhere in the woods we might be or someone may have put one of those traps for catching animals that have the teeth and the spring that grabs on their leg and the moment we see that its foot is in the trap we realise what's happened we know that puppies don't go around biting people because they want to that this being is in fear, in pain it doesn't know what to do it's trying to escape it and its only way of responding is biting it's causing us pain but it's actually crying out for help and to look at our own lives and to see how the times when we 
have caused harm to others, done things that have caused harm to ourselves. How it's come out of our own pain, our own blindness, and our our unconscious struggle to free ourselves from that pain. This is how it happens. And so just imagine the scenario again, going for a walk in the woods somewhere without past guy a house. And uh, walking along and we see a puppy. I've forgotten all about the other puppies, so biking puppies. We reach out to stroke it and it bites our hand again. We can't see its feet. It's standing up to its shoulders in autumn leaves. What would it be for us to understand without being able to see that its foot is in the trap? That even if we can't see the cause of its pain, or if it was ourselves or another, the cause of our pain, the response of violence is born of that pain and the seek to escape it. The same wish that we all share to be free of pain. And in that, to find within our heart a natural quality of forgiveness that understands that what the situation needs is our care and that equally we need our own care. We don't just allow the puppy to bite our hand and chew our hand to make it feel better. We of course take care of ourselves. But then we hopefully perhaps find ways to take care of the puppy too. Opening our heart is supported by recognizing that its closing is in fact not serving the process that we seek, but justifying anger in the service of righteousness really just leads to more suffering. And that in asking ourselves, asking of our life how it is that we may find healing. To recognize that we cannot create conditions in our life that will be without the experience of pain. Kind of simple, ordinary, everyday truth. Sitting here in meditation we come face to face with it in a very direct way. Our bodies are subject to birth, old age, sickness and ultimately death. Our hearts are subject to sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation and despair. The Buddha spoke of these frequently as being an aspect of the human condition which we must learn to meet with wisdom and with compassion. And what is it to meet this with love? Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, as he was known, Mahatma meaning great heart, 
I think is a very inspirational figure for many of us, certainly for myself. In the way he embodied and taught the capacity to meet violence with love, to meet fear with courage, and a deep abiding faith in the, the power of the human heart to overcome violence and fear. I mean, I, I have quite a sense of a, a personal, at least once or twice removed personal connection with the time in India of the of the the non-violent protest in which the the Indian people linked arms and sat down together in front of the British army. My grandmother, who is Bengali, was one of those people, one of the maidens, as she was at the time, in the in the peaceful protest where the army would come and beat and punch and sometimes shoot the protesters and drag them away. And they would just sit there, not reacting, not fighting, and yet in the incredible dignity and courage of their presence, eventually the soldiers were unable to continue. And ultimately, the British withdrew from India because of that faith in the power of love, to stay steady in the face of violence. And that incredible trust in the possibility of renewal of the heart that Mahatma Gandhi spoke of so often. There's a, a story that I once heard about something that occurred situation that arose and his response to it. During the partition of India after the, the, the British left, there was an incredible amount of violence in, in Calcutta, which is the, uh, where Gandhi spent a lot of time and a lot of violence between the Hindu and the Muslim Indian people in the process of the partition and the separation between them. And Gandhi spoke and acted tirelessly to try and prevent it and spent a lot of time as a Hindu amongst the Muslim communities trying to prevent the violence and the attacks that were going on. And at some point after this had sort of settled, a Hindu man from a village came to him incredibly distraught with anger and with grief. He said, Gandhiji, can you help me? I'm going crazy with the pain of what has happened. He said, during the riots, some Muslims found my son coming home from school and they killed him. And I was so, so upset by this. I was so angry. I was so enraged. I went and found a young Muslim boy of the same age and I killed him. And I'm torn apart by this. What can I do? I just want to end my life. I, I can't cope with the intensity of this. And Gandhi said to him, I know what you need to do. After some reflection he said, what you need to do is to go out into the village and find a Muslim boy whose parents had been killed in the violence. And there were plenty of orphans, tragically. He said, find a Muslim boy whose parents were killed in the violence. 
take him home and raise him as your son. Care for him as your own son. Just as if he was your own son. But mind, she said, to raise him as a Muslim. And the story is told that this man went away and did this. And actually came to a profound healing through that process of responding to the pain and the grief that was there within him and around him. Perhaps we ourselves most of us would not feel to have been exposed to that degree of trauma or difficulty. Perhaps we might. Perhaps our own life story is not so different. And yet, in that, the possibility to discover the great heart of life to reconnect and align our being with the spirit of loving-kindness. The possibility of cherishing all beings in our heart, finding space for our own fear and shame and anger, and equally for the fear and the anger of others, and in making space for those powerful energies making space for all the beings who are subject to them. The Buddha spoke of the possibility of cherishing all beings as a mother would cherish her own child. In the metaphor he says, to cherish all beings even as a mother would protect with her life her child, her only child so too should you cherish all beings. And to sense that that possibility of caring for life as a mother for their child. It wasn't my intention to make this talk into a family history, but I just as I was thinking about this theme just before coming, I this was reminded from again my own history, family history of what a mother might be able to do for their child. My other grandmother, who's Jewish and was in Romania and Poland during the Holocaust, escaped from a train that was taking the family to a concentration camp and escaped with my, my father then, who was just, I think, a three or four year old boy, left, you know, escaped out of the train. And she did it by jumping off and hiding in a toilet. Well, toilet's in a bit of an advanced word. It was actually a cesspit. And she actually jumped in with my father. And she was up to her neck and she held him above her head for what she reported to be like half a day till the train and the guards had gone. I don't know if you've ever tried to hold your hand above your head for a little while. The idea of what it would be to hold a three or four year old boy above your head for eight or twelve hours while standing neck deep in a cesspit. 
is just beyond comprehension to me. And yet, human beings are remarkable, remarkable things. Inexplicable, and yet remarkable. And these possibilities, the greatness of heart of a human being, is not beyond any one of us. We might ask ourselves, how is it possible? Opening to life, as we've spoken, perhaps again and again, opening to life, opening to our connection to life, to each moment, to ourselves, to each other. A process of slowly but gradually and steadily learning to unlearn the habits of disconnection, the movements of grasping and pushing away that disconnect us from life and from ourselves. Unlearning those habits of disconnection and discovering new possibilities of connection, of reconnection. The possibility of what it is to reach out and touch the earth, to feel the grass under one's feet, one's body resting upon this vast planet that some refer to as Mother Earth, a mother that holds us, that we rest upon, that provides, that provides the very nourishment whereby our existence is possible and sustained moment to moment through the very breath that we breathe the water that we drink the food we eat the warmth that is held in the atmosphere all of which we could not live without and that sense of what it is to connect to life to the greatness of life the vastness of life love is that capacity of our being, to see things, to see what it sees, as not being other, as not being apart from that which is seeing. Almost by, like osmosis, it's not like something we're doing, but it just starts to soak in. And we feel it soaking in, because as the barriers and the boundaries we build around us dissolve, and as we allow them to dissolve and as we trust that it's okay to let them gently, slowly dissolve, life actually soaks into us. And what we actually realize is that all beings, all things, all forms are of the same essence, are of the same nature, are not apart from that which we are. To see all things, to see things as they are, is to see all things as part of an undivided whole. An undivided and indivisible wholeness. That is the root of the word holiness. A wholeness that is 
holy. That is alive, and that is life itself. Knowing itself. Sensing this in the stillness. We may sometimes feel our hearts quietly resonant to the touch of life. We might not have words for it, we don't need them. Our heart has its own language, and it's a universal language. And in understanding this, we perhaps discover that we do not need to enter the heart of life, because it is where we already are. May all beings be free from fear and anger. May all beings deepen in loving kindness. May all beings abide in the great heart of life.